Thank you so much. My name is Chad. I, uh, I serve with Ascend Network, who helps church plants in the city of Columbus and also here at LifePoint. For the past uh, few months, I've been out at the Marion campus leading worship out there. So would you pray for those folks as they endure my leadership out there uh, as they suffer under that? But uh, no, it is great to be back with you. I've missed being here with you a little bit. Uh, so it's, uh, it's good to see you. I've got a few more months uh, to serve out there, but it is good to be back uh, here with you. We're, we're working through this decade-long series in the Gospel of Luke. No, I'm just kidding. It's just for the summer. Just felt a little long, honey, maybe. But no, we're just in the summer. It's been good to, to, to look at the life of Jesus. We always need to come back to the life of Jesus. So it's been uh, really good to do that as we've looked at this idea of labels. And the big idea of this series has been that the gospel calls us to a life above those. It calls us to a life above labels. And I've found out in this series and in life, the longer I live, that labels really do matter. Labels matter. Uh, the label fast and fast food matters, I've come to realize. I used to think the word fast and fast food meant how quickly the food was delivered to you. I've come to realize that fast means how quickly it becomes inedible, okay? That's what I've learned. And some of you are like, I think all fast food is inedible. And I would say, how dare you talk about the Lord's chicken that way, right? right? That Chick-fil-A is not inedible. And I think one of the best things that we've ever discovered in human history, one of the great culinary inventions is a hot McDonald's french fry. Don't judge me, okay? But I've learned that after three minutes and 13 seconds, that thing turns to cardboard. I don't know how. I don't know why. Fast food, right? Labels matter. And we've been talking about a lot of different labels in this series. We've talked about labels that we give to others. We've talked about labels that maybe we feel stuck with, labels we feel like we can't get away from. Uh, but we also have talked about labels that we give ourselves. And today I want to talk about one of those. I want to talk about a label that we give ourselves that we really shouldn't. And hopefully as we work through this message and get to the end, it's one that we can uh, put down and out of our lives. So we're going to read in Luke chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 45. Read a few verses there and we'll spend most of our time in chapter 20. But here's what it says, Luke 19, 45. And he entered the temple, he being Jesus, and began to, out, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And one day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, and, or who is it that gave you this authority? So we want to look at the label that we see here in the, in the religious leaders' lives, we see in our own lives, and that's the, the tendency for us to call ourselves autonomous from God, uh, to, to want to shrug off his authority and be autonomous. Uh, we, we in the United States especially have uh, a strong value in independence and self-reliance, and we, we guard very closely those Ideals, And so I think it's hard sometimes when we come into Christianity because we still want to hold on to our autonomy, whatever it takes. 
But I think Jesus shows us something different here. The religious leaders come up to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? To put it in a, a little bit more modern language, they're asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are doing what you're doing? And these things they're referring to, he's just cleansed the temple, he's just cleared out the temple, which if, if you're not familiar with what's going on there, I'll tell you a little bit about it. He's just run out some merchants and money changers who were setting up in the temple. The temple was designed to be a place that people could come and worship God, that all the nations could gather to connect with God. And instead it had kind of been turned into a business venture. And Jesus walks in there and runs all the merchants and money changers out. He cleanses the temple. One of the gospels says that Jesus took a whip with him. He made a whip and brought it in there and started running people out. It's not always the tender picture of Jesus that we imagine in our minds. And they want to know, the religious leaders want to know, who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to come in here? Because Jesus wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a priest. Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He had no authority in Judaism to do what he is doing. He didn't hold any positions. He was just a teacher, just a, just a guy, just a carpenter from Nazareth. Who do you think you are, they asked him. And it wasn't just the cleansing of the temple that they had a problem with. They, they asked Jesus, who gave you the authority to do these things, plural, things? He did a lot of other things they didn't care for. Uh, they didn't care for the things, uh, the people that Jesus ate with. Jesus was all the time eating with sinners. They didn't care uh, anything for what Jesus did in forgiving sins. They said, who gave you the authority to forgive sins? Jesus not only forgave sins, he ate with sinners, but he also healed people. Not only did he heal people, he healed people on the Sabbath, which they held to be a very holy day, in which you could do no work, including healing people. And so here they are coming to Jesus asking, who gave you the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? And it's, it's crazy to me to, to, to think about the religious leaders asking Jesus this question. Because they knew the Old Testament scriptures better than anybody. In fact, they probably had more of the Old Testament memorized than most of us have even ventured to read. And yet, for all the scripture they knew and all the Bible knowledge they had, they did not recognize God when he was standing right in front of them. They, they knew the scripture, but they couldn't recognize God when he was standing right in front of them. It's crazy. Jesus wasn't who they, who they were expecting. But it's more than that. Jesus really wasn't who they wanted. He didn't fit into their theological box. And so they were seeking ways to get rid of him. And just in case we are, are a little bit quick to rush to judge the Pharisees here, I think we all have these moments, these who do you think you are moments with Jesus. We all have had moments where we're asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, why are you doing these things in my life? Why are you doing this thing? Why are you doing that thing? Why are you doing what is so uncomfortable? What are you doing that is, that is leaving me with all these questions? Jesus, who do you think you are? We've all had those moments, haven't we? When we look up to him and say, who do you think you are? Because we all want this autonomy. We want to be autonomous. We want to be our own authority. Um, and Jesus pushes up against those things. Uh, it's an amazing adventure to follow Jesus, but sometimes it can be a maddening maze. 
And sometimes there's going to be moments where we say, who do you think you are? But Jesus goes on in this passage to tell a story in Luke chapter 20 that I want to read for us as we continue to think about this idea of autonomy. Luke 20 and verse 9, it says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they also said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone that falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, we've all labeled ourselves autonomous because we've assumed that we are owners when in reality we're actually tenants. We all struggle with this idea of autonomy because we, we come into this world believing that we are owners when in reality we're actually tenants. There's some scriptures that point to this. Uh, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see that? They're pushing up against God's authority. Ephesians 2 speaks to this uh, type of way that we push up against God's authority and, and we establish ourselves as owners instead of tenants. Here's what he says. For he himself who is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of, listen, hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. So th these, wor these words of peace and hostility, there's just this natural hostility that we have toward God. We, we are kind of born with this sense of entitlement, born with this sense of, I'm an owner. <laughs> I own my life, right? Uh, we, we all come by it naturally. Do you know that I've never had to sit down and disciple my kids in the ways of pushing back when it comes to my authority as their dad? I've not had to disciple them in that. I've never had to sit down and tell my children, hey, listen, daddy's going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. And when the time comes, I'm going to need you to take whatever is in your hand and throw it. If you don't have something in your hand, pick up anything in your general vicinity, grab it and throw it at me, preferably. <laughs> and then I'm going to need you to stomp scream and cry it's the parental trifecta nightmare right there right <laughs> like i've never had to have that conversation it's 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 ridiculous why because they just come 
hardwired to push against the villains that are mom and dad. <laughs> Recently, my son uh, told me that I was killing his joy. <laughs> killing his joy, right? <laughs> Right, we just we come into this world with, I think, a general skepticism to authority, if not a hostility to authority. And as God is the ultimate authority, we just we're just hostile. We just don't like it. <laughs> we just don't like it. It just doesn't come natural. We all want to be autonomous. But here's here's what's truly shocking to me about this passage specifically is that the religious leaders are the ones who, who Jesus is telling this story about here, the religious leaders. Now, uh, Pastor Dean, a couple of weeks ago, shared a story about the two lost sons. The, the, we typically hear it called the parable of the prodigal son, where one son runs away to a far country, wastes his father's wealth, comes home into the love of his father, father throws a party for him. And then there's the other son who's been there all along with the father, resents the father's grace with this one who's wasted all his wealth and and that's how the story kind of ends. And they represent kind of two people that we, that we kind of see um, illustrated in this passage too. That there is a way to avoid God through irreligion. And I think we notice that. I think we see that in the younger son, the prodigal son story. He, he's irreligious. He throws off the father's love and he goes off to live how he wants, where he wants, do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. That, that's what he does. He throws off the authority of, of God through irreligion but the the older brother it's much more subtle to know look he's been with the father the whole time and yet he's just as lost that and he represents this idea that, that we can avoid god and throw off the authority of, of jesus in our life actually through religion through religion so there's there's kind of two ways to avoid god irreligion and religion now that that's absolutely shocking isn't it um, but but it's, it's interesting because they know Jesus is telling the story about them. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. He told the parable against them. How do they know that? Well, Jesus tells a story about a vineyard. If you know anything about Old Testament history, Israel was described as a vineyard many, many times. The most prominent and clear time is in Isaiah chapter 5, where God talks about Israel being this vineyard that he planted and he cultivated and he loved. And so Jesus, in telling this parable of the, of the tenants, he's telling the history of Israel. He's saying, look, God sent you messenger after messenger after messenger. God sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. God sent you leader after leader after leader. And you rejected them and you rejected me over and over and over again. And then eventually we come into present time where Jesus says, and then God sent his son. Jesus is bringing them into the present, saying God sent his son to you. And not only will you reject him, but eventually you will kill him. And not only will you kill him, but when you're killing him, you will do it in service to your God. You will do it as a service to your, your religion. You will kill God in the name of religion. That's what he's saying. So, so there is a way to avoid God through religion, to pursue autonomy from God through religion. Well, how do we do this? Because it feels counterintuitive, doesn't it? 
feels counterintuitive. How would we do it through religion? Yet that's what the religious leaders are doing here. Well, there's three ways that we, at least three, three that I want to talk about this morning, that we avoid God through religion. The first way we avoid God is through self-righteous activity. We avoid God through self-righteous activity. There is a way to do religious activity outwardly and have no inward transformation in your life. There's a way to be outwardly religious, to do religious things, and inwardly to be far from God. That's exactly what the religious leaders were. Jesus said it this way, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like fancy casket. Outside you look all, all beautiful, but inside you know what you are? You're dead men's bones. So it's self-righteous activity to do all these things for God, but have no relationship with God. Listen to what Isaiah 111 says about this. It says, what, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goat. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people, listen, draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Matthew 7, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount addresses this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, listen, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there's a way to be religious and yet avoid God, to do many mighty works in God's name and yet at the end of the day have no relationship with the living God, to to know the scripture really well and not recognize God when he stands right in front of you. It's all possible. Self-righteous activity. But we can also avoid God through self-righteous superiority. We think our vision of God, our theology is better than everyone else's. We we have this self-righteous theology we all kind of craft theological boxes and we, we put God in that box and we expect him to stay there, don't we? But he doesn't want to stay there. He doesn't stay there. God's bigger than our boxes. He doesn't fit. Jesus showed up with the religious leaders and he, he did not fit their box. <laughs> he did not fit their box. They thought God could never, never become a man and yet there he was. They didn't have a framework for Jesus, and so they rejected him. Look, they didn't think he was just wrong. They thought he was dangerous. He he was a threat to them, and so they killed him for it. What what about us? Is God allowed to to challenge our theological box that we've put him in? (laughs) There's a way to avoid God through religion, and it's putting God in this box through self-righteous superiority. And then last of all, we avoid God through self-righteous insensitivity. There's a way for religion to kind of lull us to sleep, to kind of build a callus on our heart to where we have this insensitivity. You, You see it in the story of the tenants. 
At the end of that story, after the tenants have beaten all of these servants and eventually killed the heir, you notice that it says the owner is going to come and take the, the vineyard away from those tenants and give it to somebody else. And what is the religious leader's response? Did you catch it? <laughs> Surely not. Isn't that what they said? You want to ask them, hey, have you been listening to this story? I mean, what would you do if you owned something and, and you were the owner and your tenants acted this way? Of course you would take it away and give it to somebody else. Who wouldn't? And they say, surely not. Why? Because they can't imagine that God would take away what they have seen as their birthright as the people of God. They can't imagine that God would take that away, that he would take away the vineyard and give it to somebody else. And you know what? Eventually God does. You know how I know that? Because we're sitting in this room. Eventually, God opened the door for, for his people to be outside of the nation of Israel, the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, probably most all of us, right? And there can be, religion kind of builds this insensitivity in, in our lives where we, we become calloused. We assume that because we're born into a religious family or we've attended church all our lives or we've done some great things for God, that we're insiders all the while it's possible to be an outsider. Think back to the story of, of the prodigal son, the, the two lost sons. In that story at the very end, you have the two brothers, the younger brother who wasted all of his father's wealth and shrugged off the father's authority with irreligion. Where is he at the end of the story? Do you know? He's inside the party, isn't he? He's inside the party. He's inside the grace of the Father. He's inside the love of the Father. And where's the older brother? At the end of the story, the Father's inviting the older brother, come in and celebrate with us. Come in and celebrate us. And yet, where is he? He's outside of the party. He represents the religious people. Where are they? They're outside of the party. They're outside of the grace of God, outside of the love of God. They're being invited in, but they don't want to come in. And I think, it's, I think it's so interesting because I think we look at irreligious people and we go, man, we see that, right? That's easy to see. Those are sinners who are living their life separated from God. But religion, it kind of lulls us to sleep. And in that way, it can be more dangerous, I think, sometimes to be religious than to be irreligious. I, th I think what's happened, too, in the American church sometimes is that we've taken people from being younger brothers and we've moved them to being older brothers and we've kind of bypassed Jesus altogether. People have gone from being irreligious to religious, but there's, there's not a lot of Jesus in there. I remember when I was a church planter and sitting down and visiting with people about their story, about how they came to know Jesus. They would tell this story about five, ten minutes long about their faith journey and they'd talk about how they were saved and talked about how they were saved at VBS or youth camp or at a, a service or something like that, but they could talk about their whole story and never mention Jesus once. I just think it's super easy for us to go from irreligious to religious and kind of bypass Jesus altogether. We are not owners, right? We're tenants. God is the owner. He calls the shot. He runs our lives. If you think about it, I think autonomy is really a myth. We all are going to be dependent upon authority in our life. We're all building our life on some authority. There are things in our life that are just realities that we can't escape from. 
I think the, the key is not to shrug off all authority, but to have the right authority in our lives, to have the correct authority in our life. Look what Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone that falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 28, 16 and 17. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hell will sweep away the refuse of, refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. God said, I'm laying a, a stone, a cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Cornerstones in the first century were, were kind of fascinating um, architecture. When we think about cornerstones in our world today, we think about maybe something that's decorative or something that's ornate. Sometimes you'll see it in the corner of a building. It'll have the business or the, the, the established date on it, something like that. But cornerstones were different in the first century. Uh, when you laid a cornerstone, it was the first thing that you laid in a new building, the first stone. And you laid it, and however you laid it determined where the building would go. It would determine which direction the building would face. It determined where, how the layout would go. You, you laid the cornerstone and then built everything around it. It was the first stone. But not only was it the first stone, when you, when you laid the cornerstone, it was kind of a reference stone for all the other stones. <laughs> it was the reference point uh, by which everything else was built onto the structure. So as you built the structure, you built it in alignment with the cornerstone. And then, of course, we know that it was used for structural reasons, that as you started laying stones upon stones, the cornerstone was kind of that first one at, at the bottom. It was the, the one on which everything else was built. So when Jesus says that he's the cornerstone, that, that what, what was written in Isaiah, he says, is written about me. I'm that stone that's been laid. He's saying, I am first. <laughs> I'm the first stone. I determine the direction of this thing. <laughs> I, I, I deserve first place. And not only that, but everything is in alignment with me. Everything should align with me. Everything should be built off of me. And then I am the only person who is able to bear the weight of human hope. You, you can build on me. Everything else is sinking sand, but you can build on me. That's what he's saying when he says he's the cornerstone. And so we really have two options when it comes to him and his authority in our life. We can accept his authority, accept his place as the stone, and build our life off him, align ourselves with him, and therefore align ourselves with ourselves and others. Or we can seek to label ourselves as autonomous and seek to shrug off his authority. But if we do, listen, the results are devastating. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. So listen, when we seek to label ourselves as autonomous and seek to shake off the authority of Jesus, what are the results? Brokenness. That, that's what it says. What happens? We get crushed. 
living apart from Jesus as primary in our life around which we align everything else in our life and on which we build everything on our life. If we live apart from that, it's crushing. It will break us because there's only one cornerstone. If, If we try to put ourselves in the space where the cornerstone goes, guess what? It will crush us. Why? Because that's where he goes. He is the stone. Like there's no, you can avoid it, you can delay it, but eventually it's gonna catch up with us. Guess what? God has laid his foundation. It is sure, he is set. You think about the religious leaders. What did they do? They were fed up with Jesus, and so what did they do? They killed him, and even in killing him, they could not prevent him from being the cornerstone. (laughs) Even in killing him, he's still the cornerstone. He just came back. I mean, can't you imagine they're like, finally got rid of that guy. They thought they had gotten rid of him just like every other perceived false prophet in their mind. And yet he comes back. Why? Because he's the stone. (laughs) You can't get rid of him. You can't get rid of him. But listen, Jesus doesn't want to crush you. (laughs) Jesus doesn't want to break your life. He doesn't want you to be broken. He wants to save you. He wants to know you. He wants you to build your life on him, to give him first place, because that's the best thing for you. When we align ourselves with the cornerstone of the world, we find alignment with ourselves, with others, and in the world. When we align ourselves with him, life starts to make sense. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. In fact, sometimes with Jesus as our cornerstone, life gets a little bit more complicated at times. But here's the reality. I want you to hear this as we, as we close. If we try to live life apart from Jesus as our stone, it will crush us and it will break us. But if you live your life with Jesus as your stone, nothing can ultimately crush or break you. If we try to live our lives apart from Jesus as as our stone, it will crush us, it will break us. But if we have Jesus as our cornerstone, nothing can ultimately break you or crush you. It really can, not ultimately. So where are you? Have you labeled yourself as autonomous? And if you have, are you willing to maybe take that one off today and ask Jesus to be your cornerstone? Let's pray. Lord, we have sought to live our own lives in our own way. All of us have. God, we have been hostile to you. God, you sent your son to break through the hostility and to give us your peace. God, we have set ourselves up as owners when in reality we're really tenants. God, would you help us to see that when we build our lives on you, God, it's the way that life should be. You are the stone. Help us to put you first. Help us to align our lives with you. Help us to build our lives on you, we pray in Jesus' name.